Today's episode of Duncan Holder is brought to you by Remarkably Remote, a new daily microcast from the experts at GoToMeeting, all about making work from home work for you. With indispensable intel on how to stay sane, motivated, and productive at home, we're here to help you in this brave new remote working world. Find us on smart speakers or subscribe on your favorite podcasting app. You can also listen at gotomeeting.com slash tips. That's gotomeeting.com slash tips. What is that when you jump around and carry on and do the who dat, who dat stuff? Who dat, you know, that's really kind of a, a fan. You know, that's that's our, our, our chant. Duncan Holder Podcast back at you. Larry Holder, Jeff Duncan here on the Athletics Podcast Network. Of course, uh, if you're listening to this podcast, first, want to thank you in time of quarantine and stay at home. What else are you going to do? Listen to Duncan Holder Podcast and get all of your New Orleans sports goodies. And of course, if you're listening to this, you're doing it in one of two or three or four ways. You could certainly jump on wherever you get your podcasts, Apple, Spotify, and you can rate, review, subscribe, do all those good things. Tell a friend, tell a million, jump on the Duncan Holder podcast. Or you could jump on theathletic.com slash Duncan Holder. I know you can get 40% off of an annual subscription to The Athletic by doing that and get all of our pods, all of our great work, all of our great work across every scope of The Athletic. So jump on and do that as well. And look, on this podcast, we're going to be uh, – Jumping on a couple of different topics. We're going to save the draft chatter for the the next couple of weeks. Uh, But as we're in the beginning of April, uh, Jeff, I know last night uh, you and me and a lot of the New Orleans crowd, I'd be curious to see ESPN's ratings, rewatched the Katrina Dome coming. Of course, the Saints taking on the Falcons, Steve Gleason's Black Punt, huge huge event in the history of New Orleans. So we'll be talking about our thoughts about that, rewatching some of the things that memories that came back in our our mindset. And also in the second half of the podcast, we're going to be going over the all-decade team from the 2010s. Jeff was one of the voters on the panel. Of course, you, you uh, the Pro Football Hall of Fame voters, uh, they're the ones who voted for the team, uh, three notable Saints players on that roster, one notable Saints player absent from that roster. So we'll talk about that in the back half of the podcast. But Jeff, look, you and me covered that game back in 2006, September 25th. And going in, who knew what kind of iconic moment we would have with Steve Gleason? Uh, we just knew that that game would ultimately mean a rebirth for New Orleans, even without the block punt. I think so many people would have uh, would have seen it as that, regardless of if there was a big explosion play that happened like Steve Gleason's. Yeah, I think the the game itself took a backseat to the event of the night. It was so much bigger than just a football game. Obviously, it helped that the Saints won, and we had this iconic play at the very opening two minutes of the game. Uh, but... Uh, it was just a huge Super Bowl-like event. I think one of the quotes that I saw in one of my archive stories, somebody said it was a Super Bowl for locals, and that's exactly what it was like. Uh, you know, the anticipation built around that game. You know, some of the, so many things 
came back to me, Larry, as we were watching the game last night and so many things that I had forgotten about. Uh, the fact that it was the first Monday night broadcast in the Superdome in five years, that seems incredible to think about now because they come, the Monday night football crew comes pretty much annually now. And, uh, you know, some of those old uh, things, this is Sean Payton idea to have the, the red carpet entrance with the players uh, in front of the dome, valet parking. I mean, that was, I forgot about that. I mean, there was, uh, you know, looking at Sean Payton and Pete Carmichael on the sidelines and looking how young they are, it really does hit you how long they've been together uh, in New Orleans uh, and how long ago that was, because it doesn't seem that long ago to me in some ways. Uh, so, yeah, it was a really fun night, a really special uh, evening and a great distraction for people in New Orleans to get their minds off uh, the quarantine. Yeah, absolutely. Of course, we did a live chat here on The Athletic, you, me, and Catherine Terrell, and had some fun. And Jennifer Armstrong, our uh, our editor here in New Orleans, we had a really good time with that. Uh, good interaction. And, of course, on Twitter, it was certainly a buzz. Uh, former Saints players, current Saints players all jumping on there. Even Sean Payton, he told us last week that he wasn't going to have time to live tweet the uh, the game. And, of course, Sean Payton has become like this machine on Twitter. Uh, he's he's uh, He can't help himself now, so he jumped on there and, and had a good time with it. Uh, even at one point, Jeff, I think you – I don't know if you saw that, but took a shot at Drew Brees' receding hairline. My goodness, Sean Payton was spicy on there. I don't, I don't know what was going on. But, uh, <laughs> but look, I think it was uh, – uh, it, it kind of draws parallels to, to kind of what we're going through today. And I don't know if that was – uh, ESPN's uh, logic in airing this game. I think they were just looking for the best uh, Monday night football games that they've ever had. And this is obviously one of them. But I do think that even locally, and this is something that I don't know if that it's been discussed a ton, but there's too, too many parallels for what we're dealing with now with COVID-19, the coronavirus, and everyone being socially distanced and working from home and, uh, you know, restaurants closed and the parallel of people unfortunately dying and the parallel to what happened with Hurricane Katrina here. And it's uh, I think New Orleanians can relate to all of this maybe more uh, than maybe a lot of uh, the scope of this country. No doubt sports is an escape for so many people and it certainly served uh, football in particular Uh, Because we live in such a football-crazy area of the country, football is a a welcome relief for people, uh, especially back then. Uh, You know, people were battling FEMA, uh, the bureaucracy of insurance companies, trying to rebuild their homes. I mean, life was hard here back then, even that far removed from the storm a year later. And by no means was New Orleans back to normal so football, I think, and, and, and credit the local officials, Saints officials, Paul Tagliabue with having the vision uh, and understanding that what, what the NFL could mean as a symbol to so many people. I mean, the NFL is basically a Fortune 500 company for New Orleans. We don't have a lot of Fortune 500 companies here. We don't have any in, in the state of Louisiana now. So in many ways, the NFL serves that purpose and for them to invest in bringing back the Saints and serving as a symbol that, hey, we can rebuild the city. The NFL's back here. The Saints aren't going anywhere. I think created a lot of momentum and a lot of optimism in the minds of people here locally that we're still grasping for right now in the middle of this pandemic. 
Uh, we don't really see a light at the end of the tunnel yet. And I think, uh, you know, in many ways, uh, that's the parallel that we have between life then and life now. Absolutely. And uh, look, I know we're all kind of going through this together and it's a national thing. And uh, I, I feel like at least, uh, and kudos to ESPN for popping that game on TV. And I think not just people here watched it. I think people all over the the world watched it. Uh, and I'm curious to see the TV ratings. I bet it rates like a Monday night football game, Jeff. I don't. I bet it's not just some uh, some rerun of like uh, Family Matters or something like you might see on, on on like Nick at Night or something like that. I bet you this rated like a a Monday night football game. Uh, just like, and I'm sure New Orleans, the ratings were probably through the roof. Yeah, I'm interested to see as well. I know the ratings probably won't come out till later this afternoon. Uh, I know we'll get some national ratings earlier than that, but the local markets uh, usually don't come out till the afternoon, uh, the day after. So it'll be interesting to see. There was no doubt there was great interest in the game. I think it speaks a lot to where we're at right now. I mean, people are starving for some kind of sports as a distraction, and that game is is really impossible to find now. That those that's the other thing that's interesting about it. I mean, it's not on NFL Game Pass. You can't go back and watch. 2006 games on NFL Game Pass. So, uh, you know, to see that again, I think for a lot of people was a real treat. And just the game in and of itself, it's like you had this exciting start and then you had the Superdome special and then it's just kind of, all right, the the game just kind of goes and only three points are scored in the second half. And you you almost forget that uh, the Saints kind of cruised to a win, but it wasn't like this aesthetically pleasing game. Uh, You know, everybody remembers uh, the Gleason block punt. I forgot that Josh Bullock's blocked Morton Anderson's field goal, and uh, I I knew they only scored three points. And I was thinking as the, as I was watching the game, they're driving, and I'm thinking, how were how did the Saints even stop them? Was there like a pick? Was there like a fumble? I I just had forgotten that that Josh Bullock's. And it's funny, uh, just the players you saw in the field, Jeff. I mean, it just brings back so many memories of us covering that locker room and covering that phase basically from 06 to 09 and and some of the characters that were in that locker room and it it just goes to show you just that team in general the 2006 team they weren't the most talented team on the field a lot of times it's almost like they were just gritty and gutty and and played smart and that's why they were able to play so well in 2006 because I I just go back to always look at the linebacker core I mean, Scott Vegeta comes over as a free agent. Uh, Scott Shanley is traded to the Saints uh, r- near the end of training camp. Mark Simino is traded to the Saints as an afterthought and a Dante Stallworth treat at, uh, in the middle point of training camp. And those two guys had to start at linebacker and had no idea what they were walking into in New Orleans. It, it, just the whole the whole roster, it, it seems, it's, when you look back at it, you're like, wow, I can't believe that that Saints team – almost got to a Super Bowl that year. Yeah, they were amalgamation of the the Hazlitt era and the, the turnover into the, the Peyton era. So you had a lot of players like Joe Horn and Jamal Brown. And, I mean, Josh Bullock's blocked <laughs> blocked a field goal in that game. I've forgotten about that. I mean, there were a lot of uh, players that were uh, in transition in their careers on that team. And if you go back and watch that team, I mean, early on, uh, I've talked to Drew Brees about this before. I mean, it's it's a shell of the offense that we now see uh, in the Peyton Brees era. I mean, they were so rudimentary in their concepts, 
the installation process, the playbook was very uh, elementary. Uh, so we didn't see the explosive passing attack that developed there from about 2008 on. Uh, they were really kind of a balanced offense built around the running game with Reggie Bush and Deuce McAllister. Uh, Mike Carney was, of course, the lead fullback. But that team overachieved. Sean Payton will tell you to this day, uh, like you said, they weren't the most talented team they ever had, but uh, they were smart, played well together, and I think played a lot on emotion from the city, understanding their role in the community and being lifted by uh, the fan base here who, uh, who was so passionate about their return. And uh, I really feel like if you go back and watch midseason on, they were about a 500 team. You know, they, they, they kind of won a game, lost a game, won a game, lost a game, but they got off to that great start, that surprising start, won a couple of really close games. And the emotion of, the, of that night that we watched last night, the, the Falcons' dome coming game, I think fueled this team early on and carried them uh, above and beyond what their, really, what their talent level was. Yeah, I had someone on uh, a comment section of the story I wrote leading up to the game uh, where I retold a lot of the, some previous interviews I did uh, when we were back at the Times-Picayune. And I couldn't, I forgot how many interviews I did for that st- a couple of stories uh, retelling the, the return to, to the Dome. And uh, just so, and one of the comments was, you know, the Falcons, they were destined to lose that game, this, that, and the other. And now I go think back on it, and I don't know if the Saints play as well as they would have uh, in that game if they didn't win those first two games. Because if they would have looked anything like they would have been in – training camp and Jeff you remember those awful preseason games where they looked terrible I remember in Shreveport uh, and Jackson they just looked like they hadn't didn't have a clue of what they were doing and looked terrible and if they would have played that way to open the season I don't know if they would have won that game Uh, but I think winning those first two games what was it at Cleveland and at Green Bay uh, I think that spurred them even more uh, than maybe just the adrenaline of the home crowd. A hundred percent agree. Uh, you know, that team, even Sean Payton, Drew Brees had doubts about how good they were going to be from the way they played in the preseason. And I think that's that's another kind of underrated factor, Larry, in why that game was so emotional. Uh, people forget, I mean, this team, that was the first real, you know, look that local fans had at the team. Obviously, they were able to watch preseason games on TV, but training camp was in Jackson, Mississippi. Uh, the, the, the preseason games were all on the road. They played one in Shreveport, I think one in Jackson uh, as their home games. And then they played their first two regular season games on the road, all designed by the NFL to create a timeline to finish the renovation project at the Dome. So this was the first chance for fans to get to see Reggie Bush, for, the, for fans to get to see Drew Brees in person, and that contributed to the anticipation of that night. Then you have that block punt a minute and a half into the game. It's such a rare play. Uh, hardly ever do you get a block punt in a game. Uh, you know, you get maybe one of them in a season. For it to happen that early in the game, I think contributed to the outpouring of emotion uh, when it happened uh, because it was just such a surprising event uh, in in the night. Absolutely. And when you 
think back in that game. You're always going to think of that play. Everyone's going to think of that play, and rightfully so. And you would have thought of that play anyway and seen Steve Gleason in such an incredible light anyway just because he was already a cult hero. Uh, He was always a special teams guy with the hair flying down the field. And, of course, he would be the one who uh, guts it out, was a Hazlitt guy, still made the team, uh, and made that play. And and now, of course, you fast forward and just all of the adversity he's gone through in his life and all of the good he's done through the adversity in his life. uh, I just think it adds up to one of the cooler stories we've ever seen in sports. Jeff, I know you've been so... Uh, so much following that story, so much so where I know you wrote a column uh, about Steve Gleason being uh, your favorite player ever to watch, Jeff. Just uh, like I said, you you've been so in in that uh, in that world for so long. Uh, just your reflection on on what he's been able to do and continues to do uh, on and off the field. Well, I mean, I think it, it was so special that he got. That moment. I mean, Steve was a um, overachiever, if you will. Uh, I think sometimes we, and I wrote this in, in my story about Steve. Relatively speaking, he was not a particularly great athlete by NFL standards. But to get to the NFL, as you know, Larry, you got to be an incredible athlete. And Steve was a great athlete at Washington State. He was the best athlete at his high school course. Played like three sports. Uh, he played and started as an outfielder at a Pac-10 school, was a really good outfielder for Washington State's baseball team. I mean, that's rare. I mean, how many how many players do we see at LSU playing and starting in both uh, both baseball and football at that level? Uh, that tells you how rare an athlete he was. He just was a little undersized. And, and he loved New Orleans and ended up marrying a, a New Orleans girl. He was just dating Michelle at the time. But he was a guy that early on got it. He lived uptown back then. Uh, he was the only player living in New Orleans. I mean, back then, all the players lived out in Destrehan. They lived across the lake on the North Shore. None of them lived in New Orleans proper. Steve dove into the community. He would go out to Tipitina's. He would go to the you know the New Year's Eve bonfire out in Mid City. Uh, he he drank up the culture, even though he came from Spokane, Washington, as far away as you can get from the city. Uh, he immediately kind of dived into the to the unique charms of our of our culture here. And so that's why it made it special because he had that moment where, he, and he was a guy of all people that understood what it meant to the city. He was going to marry into a New Orleans family, a deep-rooted New Orleans family, and he understood uh, what it meant to the, to the people of New Orleans to have a night like that, and he knew it right away. And so that's why it was so cool for me to be able to talk to him about it that night and also to share with him over the years uh, what it meant to him. Because initially, if you know Steve, Larry, and I know you do, I mean, he he kind of doesn't like to be pigeonholed into one thing. Like he, he initially was kind of like, look, I, I had a, an eight-year career. I did a lot of things. Uh, you know, there were a lot of games I played. I don't want to be known for just one thing. That's just Steve's mentality and his personality. Uh, but he's come to embrace it now. And obviously, there's a statue memorializing the play, and he's very proud of it. But initially, those first few days afterwards – uh, he was just kind of ho-hum. Yeah, it was a great night. It was a great part of my legacy. But, uh, you know, he was more concerned with, uh, you know, going on to the next opponent. It, it, it kind of took on mythical quality over time. Yeah, and when 
I remember him going to the podium after the game. I mean, how often has a special teams player, not a kicker, gone to the podium after the game uh, and spoken to a worldwide audience because the world was watching? And that was his attitude. He he was, of course, super grateful and excited. And uh, but yeah, like you said, he, he it's the play has certainly grown on him uh, as as time has gone on and. I remember asking him uh, one time about just some of the things that people have told you about the play that stuck with him. And he, he just told me that he really loved just the, everyone's individual story of retelling it. Like he says, he's got so many examples, but he pointed to his dad who, uh, you know, was two time zones away and watching in his living room by himself. And uh, when he, when Steve blocks the punt, his dad just remembers standing up by himself, screaming at the TV, that's my son, that's my son. And he's just watching the game alone and, you know, in his living room, not knowing that this was going to happen. And so, you know, obviously uh, a really cool event last night. Uh, you know, Saints Twitter and people on our chat uh, at The Athletic, we had a great time watching it. And I, I think everyone viewed it as a game that was actually happening and an event and a reason to celebrate, even though we weren't together, it was a reason uh, to kind of just celebrate great sports and just a fun time in life, honestly. Yeah. It, uh, you know, I had such a good time um, reliving that with the fans and it brought back a lot of really uh, different emotions for me uh, watching it, especially involved with, you know, with Steve itself. But the thing I always, remember about that night, Larry, is the event, you know, I keep talking about the pregame musical lineup of U2, Green Day, you had Goo Goo Dolls out on the, uh, you know, the, the apron of the Superdome before the game, Irma Thomas, Alan Toussaint, Kermit Ruffins playing the national anthem. Uh, that is like a Super Bowl level entertainment lineup. Uh, you, you don't see that level uh, high profile entertainment lineup at some Super Bowls. And that is a credit to the NFL for their commitment and their investment in that game. I mean, it was the biggest regular season game in NFL history. I've said that before, and I don't think there's any doubt about it. We haven't seen one like it since then. Uh, we, you know, it was basically a Super Bowl for locals, like they said. And um, that night before I got into the dome, was working on a story for the Times Picayune, uh, an assignment, basically. I'd already written about it a million times, and, and yet, you know, how, you know how it is, Larry. They they give you another assignment. Okay, go go write the day before the game assignment, and I'm like, geez, you know, what am I going to get? I've already written everything possible. So I go down to the, to the Superdome to see just kind of the scene, and I get a hold of Brian McCarthy, who's the, the PR director for the NFL, and he got myself and Sam Farmer for the LA Times. He snuck us in, if you will, into the dome uh, hours, you know, for. for I guess it was probably like about four or five o'clock to see the rehearsal of U2 and Green Day because they rehearsed for about three hours that night on the on the floor of the Superdome at midfield, their routine for the next night. So I had a sneak preview of what it was going to be like. But that was incredible. I was standing 10 feet from the stage with Bono up there and Billy Joe Armstrong throwing a football on the field to his son uh, while U2 was up there. And then they'd trade off and get up there together. And uh, it was just, I could tell it was going to be epic. Uh, that that set they were going to play, and so that's what resonates with me was that pregame uh, musical act by by that group because it was very emotional and I think really 
really kind of christened the night, if you will, right before the start of the game. Man, Jeff, I didn't know you had uh, such VIP uh, stroke. Wow, I, I need to hang out with you more often. Come on. <laughs> I was desperate for like some kind of content, man. You know, Brian McCarthy came through for us. And uh, the other thing I remember that night, and we can we can transition into something else after this, but I remember Rita Benson LeBlanc coming with a little entourage. Back then she was part of the ownership group, and she had a football and a sign like Saints jersey and maybe a helmet. And she presented it to Bono about midway through the rehearsal. And it was just funny because you could kind of tell he was he was obviously grateful for it. But he also, you know, being Scottish, I mean, he don't think he had it, or Irish. He didn't have any idea, uh, you know, what, what to do with this helmet and football and jersey as he was up there on stage trying to go through his rehearsal. And that sticks out in my mind as well as, you know, she made a big presentation midway through the rehearsal. He probably thought, damn, this is heavy. I'm not putting it on my head. No way. We don't wear helmets in our football that we watch. Totally. None of this nonsense. But exactly, yeah. So, no, what, a, what an awesome experience. And uh, look, hopefully uh, as we are practicing social distancing and working from home and staying away from each other, that uh, another event like this could could bring us kind of together virtually. So what a, what a great night. But, but Jeff, yesterday – uh, I'm talking, of course, Monday midday. The all-decade team for the 2010 to 2019 came out, and pretty great to have you on board the podcast because you were one of the voters on that poll. And uh, three Saints players made the roster. You had Jari Evans, Cam Jordan, and Darren Sproles. And, of course, when I say that, that means Drew Brees was left off another national list. But, Jeff, just, uh, let's just start with you taking part in the voting process. Uh, I know um, you, were, uh, you had your votes, and you, I know you voted for five Saints players to get on that, that team, right? Yeah, you know, I, I was disappointed that Brees didn't make it, but I wasn't surprised. I mean, we, you and I both know he – tends to get overlooked nationally. I don't know why. I don't know what it's going to take at this point for people to recognize his greatness. But he always seems to take a back seat to the Aaron Rodgers, Peyton Manning, uh, Tom Brady trio. And uh, if you look at his accomplishments, and I know you did a great job of it in your column, uh, he stacks up with anybody. But for whatever reason, I think uh, gets overlooked Maybe because he plays with uh, under Sean Payton and people view him as somewhat of a system quarterback, which I think is very unfair. Uh, but I definitely voted for him. I mean, the, the Hall of Fame selection committee votes on these all-decade teams. It was a little different this year, Larry. I mean, the one criticism I have and some of my colleagues have that are on the committee is that there's too many players on it. I mean, this is there are way too many players on this first team. It's the first time it's ever been this way uh, where we have – you know, six linebackers, I think, and, uh, you know, flex players. I mean, the, the number of players that are on this team is by far the greatest of any decade in the history of the all-decade teams. But it's a significant accomplishment and will go a long way if you make this team to your Hall of Fame credentials uh, one day after your career is over. Uh, I don't think Drew Brees is going to have any problem getting in the Hall of Fame. He's going to be a, a shoe in but uh, certainly I think he was deserving. Yeah, and there, the, here's the thing with the, with the team. There's no second team. This right. is the first time uh, you guys have ever done this where there is no second team. It's all just one team, and 
uh, you know, one of the, I know, uh, Shireen Williams, of course, she's a longtime voter and she put on there that Hall of Fame credentials for this list. It's got to be a little muddied because um, in the first team, all decade team, there are only six players that have never made the Hall of Fame. And that's excluding people that aren't eligible yet, like Tom Brady and, and such. But uh, someone like Alan Fanica, he's a first teamer that is still fighting to get in the Hall of Fame. But when you put all these players in there, I don't know if it uh, you have to kind of dissect the uh, where they actually stand in the hierarchy of say four defensive ends are, are on that team and uh, you know two quarterbacks. Usually, it's just one quarterback. So uh, I, I get I totally get the criticism there. Yeah, and you know it's a little quirky if you think about it, Larry, because if you're a player that comes into the NFL in mid-decade, your career can be split among all decade teams and you could not make either team. That happens very often. Say you came in in 2005, uh, you know, your, your career is going to overlap from the 2000 to 2009 all-decade team to, the, to the, you know, the second decade, the teens decade. So you, you can actually – be a victim of unfortunate timing with your career and not make these teams strictly because of when you entered the league. And I think that's a little unfair as well. But I will say this, it is a significant criteria for selection committee members on the Hall of Fame. I mean, if you were the best at your position or one of the best at your position for an entire decade in the league, uh, that's pretty strong uh, you know, resume material. And I know it was the exact argument I made successfully that got Morton Anderson in during the selection committee uh, meeting that year he got in. He was a two-time first-team all-decade selection. There's only been five of those ever. Dick Buckus, Walter Payton, Reggie White. I might be blanking on the other one, but... Willie Rofe, my friend. Willie Rofe. Was he really first-team? I don't well, think he was, was first not first team. team. Yeah, I don't think he was I first team. I take that back. He was first team and second team. Right. That's right. But he was he's been on it. He's his name's at least showed up twice. Right, right. And that was that was obviously a strong uh, you know, argument for him, but but the fact that Morton Anderson was the best kicker in the league for 20 years basically, for two decades and wasn't getting into the Hall of Fame, that was what I hammered home uh, in my presentation and that the other ones, the ones I mentioned, Larry, Reggie White, Dick Buckus, Walter Payton, they were all first ballot entries. And here we were still trying to get Morton Anderson in four times, uh, leading score in the history of the NFL. So that ended up being the argument that won it. And I think one day uh, we're going to see players like Jari Evans who made the list, Cameron Jordan. That's going to help their Hall of Fame uh, argument once they get in the room. Absolutely. And we'll, we'll dive into some of those uh, in a second. But Jeff, let's just go back to Drew Brees versus Aaron Rodgers. And look, for me, I get the loyalty to Drew Brees. I understand that. And yet, I think when you kind of go through the important numbers, uh, it was either, it was basically the voters voted stats versus wins or and or awards. I mean, that's what it came down to because you look at Drew Brees' stats, uh, they're certainly better in every significant category. Now, one glaring stat I'm looking at, Drew Brees had 127 picks uh, in this in that decade. Aaron Rodgers only had 63. Uh, so that's one negative. But 
Aaron Rodgers' winning percentage was much better in the regular season. Uh, Drew Brees' playoff record was four and six. Aaron Rodgers' was ten and seven. Uh, Drew Brees had four losing seasons as a starting quarterback. Uh, Aaron Rodgers as a starter in because of course he had a couple seasons knocked short, but as a starter and in, in, he's only had one losing season in this decade. Two first team All Pros for Aaron Rodgers, none for Drew Brees. One Super Bowl win for Aaron Rodgers. Drew Brees' doesn't count in this in this uh, point in time. And you look at two league MVPs, and Drew Brees didn't have any. So that to me is I'm I'm just stating the case. That's probably why Aaron Rodgers got in over Drew Brees at this point. And that's always going to be uh, you know the argument against Drew Brees in that group is the the Saints' playoff record is has not been that strong, especially of late. And uh, those three lose those three seven and nine seasons from 2014 to 2016. When the team, it was no fault of Drew Brees. You and I know that it was the defense was so bad, uh, the, the the struggles defensively, they just couldn't overcome it. And I think they were seven and nine because of Drew Brees. I think those teams were probably four and twelve teams in, in talent, but Drew Brees was so good he he was able to win games for them. But you're right uh, when it gets down to these kind of votes against other great players, uh, it comes down to how your team performed overall. And that fair or unfair, uh, you know, he definitely struggles in a matchup with Aaron Rodgers in this ten-year window. Uh, yeah, and look, it's not like we're saying Drew Brees isn't going to be a first ballot Hall of Famer. I mean, come on, people, and it's that you know, career-wise, Drew Brees. Uh, if you look at it, uh, very similar to Aaron Rodgers, outside of like I said, two MVPs, but they both won a Super Bowl, and they've only both played in one. So I think their careers. Are quite similar. I think if we're going to make a a screaming match, might as well scream about how Aaron Rodgers and Drew Brees didn't make the All 100 uh, year team for the NFL. I think you could you could scream about that over some other quarterbacks that that did make it. But yeah, one of the interesting uh, things that I came across in uh, kind of making some arguments because, like I said, and you said, the All Decade team is one of those accolades that helps you get in the Hall of Fame. So I wanted to dive into see just where Jari Evans' chances and what Cam Jordan needs to do the rest of his career to maybe have a chance to get into the Hall of Fame. And and Jeff, you know, you and me have talked about it a lot. We always feel like Jari Evans is is on the fringe of the Hall of Fame. We don't know if he's going to get in, but some of the things I did using uh, the pro football references Pro Football Hall of Fame monitor that they just came up with. Uh, they started using this statistical uh, gauge in December, and it go. It, look, Jari Evans. You you go through that and you you look at some of the criteria, and Jari Evans has a lot of things that stack up with with some of the better guards to ever make the Hall of Fame. I, I was kind of surprised when I saw that. That uh, it, to me, it almost bolstered his case a little more in my eyes. Yeah, his his credentials certainly are worthy of being a finalist. I don't think there's any doubt he'll he'll make uh, make it as a finalist probably multiple times. Whether he gets induction or not, I think it's a 50-50 call, to be honest with you. The offensive lineman, we see right now there's a bottleneck. Uh, Alan Fanica, uh, you know, Steve Hutchinson, Tony Baselli, a lot of great players uh, that still have not gotten in along the offensive line because the criteria is so difficult to get them in 
it's a very difficult position sometimes, I think, to evaluate, even for knowledgeable uh, football uh, you know, journalists that are on that selection committee and player, former players. Uh, it's difficult to say uh, you were a standout dominant player other than looking at uh, these kind of things, Pro Bowl nominations, uh, you know, invites and all pro selections and all decade selections are, are one of the reasons that are one of the main criteria people use for the Hall of Fame. So we'll see when he gets to that point. It's coming up soon uh, that Jari Evans will be considered uh, for induction. I'm interested to see and certainly we'll make a strong case for him uh, once he gets in the room. Yeah, and look, talking about Alan Fanica, if you go by this monitor, he should have been in already, and the the gauge that they'd use. So, and Jeff, I know you've said this uh, after voting that you feel like Fanica, like he he should be the next one in. And of course, Steve Hutchinson did get in this past year. Tony Baselli's been on the outside looking in for a while, uh, but just some of the things that I I unearthed. If you haven't read my column, uh, look, and this is going by the again the Pro Football Reference gauge. Uh, which I feel like it's a fair gauge, which is, and Jeff, you said, uh, I'm going a little inside the meeting, but you said it was cited by people within the meeting this year, right? So people tr- people who vote on this trust this gauge, right? Yeah, it's it's a, it's something that I think people a lot of, put a lot of um, weight into, along with the approximate value formula that you and I reference a lot and, and use a lot in our coverage. Both those metrics by uh, pro football reference, uh, I think carry a lot of weight among the selectors because they know what's behind the metric. Uh, so it does make a lot of sense. Yeah, I'll just rattle off some of the things that I found uh, just as of right now. Look, Jari is the second highest guard on that list that's not in the Hall of Fame. Uh, the other one is Alan Fanica. He's above three Hall of Famers uh, on the list, Billy Shaw, Mike Munchak, and, and Tom Mack. And the average all first team all pro uh, nods for a guard that has gotten into the Hall of Fame is four. Jari Evans has that. The average Pro Bowl nods uh, is actually eight. Jari Evans has six, so he's a little behind that. But I think we value the all pros more than the Pro Bowls in itself. And the approximate value, Jeff, Jari Evans finished with uh, a weighted approximate value of 111. And the weighted average approximate value for a guard who made the Hall of Fame is only 96. The only players, the guards that got in uh, above that are above Evans right now are uh, Bruce Matthews, Randall McDaniel, Alan Fanica, Will Shields, and he's tied with John Hanna. So add all that up, and I didn't realize that before I did the research, and you add all that up, and... It makes a case to me. And then if you look at the guard group that got into the 2010s All-Decade team, it's Jari Evans, Logan Mankins, Zach Martin, and Marshall Yanda. Mankins and Yanda are retired. Jari Evans is above them in that list. Zach Martin, look, he's younger in the list. He might jump all of them. But look, all I know is that Jari Evans, by making this list, his case is certainly stronger. And like I just said, all these values and gauges that people take seriously in the voting room – I think Jari Evans has a stronger case uh, to me than I thought he did maybe yesterday before I did this story. Yeah, no, I think his, he's going he's gonna to have a strong case. There's no doubt about it. What he's accomplished, winning that Super Bowl was huge. That's a big, that's a big, uh, a big uh, selling point uh, for his uh, candidacy 
But I, I don't think he's a shoe in by any means. I think he's going to be really, if I had to guess, I would say just knowing how, the, how it's gone over the years, I think he's not going to get in. Uh, I would say he's less likely to get in than get in. Uh, but I think it's going to be close. I think he's going to be one of those ones that could go either way. Um, but um, it's difficult for offensive linemen to get in. Um, so we'll, we'll see when he gets to that point. Uh, but I do think this Hall of Fame criteria that you're talking about, uh, the metric is going to help his case. And let's turn to Cam Jordan. Obviously, he still has some football left to play. Uh, he turns 31 uh, in July. And uh, it's funny, I got a question on Twitter, and they were they sent me a screenshot of pro football reference of, of current sack leaders in, that are still playing in the NFL and just where does Cam Jordan kind of stack up and, and what does he need to do to get into the Hall of Fame? And look, he he's still got a ways away, I'll be honest with you. Uh, just because if you're looking at sack totals, uh, the defensive ends that are basically fighting to even become finalists, much less to get in right now, are guys like Julius Peppers and Jared Allen and John Abraham, Dwight Freeney, Robert Mathis, Richard Seymour. Those guys either are or will be fighting or spots in Canton. And so, look, Cam Jordan right now, obviously we know he's an overall monster defensive end. So he's, he shouldn't be judged just on sacks. And I don't think he is, even in the the, the Pro Football Hall of Fame monitor that uh, Pro Football Reference uses. Uh, but still, he's at 87. He would... If he got 30 more, that would leave him at 117, and it would still leave him kind of behind some of the people that are fighting for spots. And then if you include people like outside linebackers like Demarcus Ware and uh, uh, Terrell Suggs, those guys have almost 140 sacks each. And, you know, it, it, it took Ricky Jackson 128 sacks to get into the Hall of Fame. And so, look, I think Cam Jordan... He's in the hall of very good right now. I, he's got to do uh, and be. He's got to ride this thing into his mid thirties uh, for him to really get a, a good shot at the Hall of Fame, Jeff. Yeah, I think it would help obviously if the Saints win another Super Bowl or even get to another Super Bowl. I think that's really going to help his candidacy. But there's no doubt he's an All Decade player. He's the best defensive player of the Peyton Breeze era. There's no question about that. Uh, easy, yeah, easy. No one's even really in his uh, in his realm. Uh, he's probably the best defensive player the Saints have had since the Dome Patrol guys. You know, I would say I can't think of anyone better than Cam Jordan. He's been consistently uh, plays at such a high level and is so durable. You and I talk about it. He never, never gets hurt. I mean, he hasn't missed a game in his entire career. He hardly ever even misses a snap, and, and the ones he's missing recently have all been by design to kind of take. Uh, some of the burden off of him from playing so often. Uh, he is the quintessential leader of that team uh, on that side of the ball and has been as integral to the uh, resurgence of the Saints defense as any player. I think he sets the tone for everybody uh, on that defense with how he already practices and how hard he plays. Yeah, and just another thing as far as uh, the Hall of Fame monitor that I've been referring to, as far as defensive ends are concerned, uh, he is number three among active players for Hall of Fame consideration. Uh, the other two above him are J.J. Watt and Calais Campbell. J.J. Watt is considered a Hall of Famer right now and th- that he would get in. 
Uh, but Campbell and Cam Jordan are still far down the list of a lot of players who uh, I, I mentioned a bunch of those guys, Peppers, Allen, Abraham, Freeney, Mathis. Well, we'll see more. Mathis is on the same plane as Jordan, but all those guys are, are right now retired and well above Cam Jordan on that list. So Cam Jordan still has plenty of years to play in the league, but obviously uh, he's trending upward and this distinction of the all-decade team will definitely help his case. So, look, Jeff, uh, look, you better get your uh, you better get your uh, your campaign signs <laughs> ready for Jari and Cam Jordan. You got to walk in with and like start giving out hats and buttons and and or maybe just be like the Russians and just rig the vote, right? I think you ought to do that. Well, I will say this, and, and not joking about it. I mean, it's a tremendous uh, honor to be able to do that, to be able to represent those players and to present their case. But there's also uh, inherent obligation and responsibility that goes with that because you know what it means to those players to earn that distinction. It's the highest honor you can receive in the football profession. So to make it into the Hall of Fame um, means so much to the players. Uh, there's, there's a duty that goes along with that to make a case for them because when you get to that final 15, Larry, those 15 players are all incredibly uh, gifted, talented, accomplished players. You don't get to that point without being the best of the best. And it's very difficult to separate a guard, say, from the 1980s era, and you're comparing that player's career to, say, a wide receiver from the 2000s. It's very, it's apples and oranges in a lot of ways. And the analogy I always use is it's like a beauty contest, a Miss Universe pageant. I mean, every country is beautiful. It's not like you've got, uh, you know, someone there that's not, uh, you know, going to have a tremendous argument for the Hall of Fame. So it's really, a lot of it gets down to timing. Uh, Sometimes it can come, uh, you you need uh, luck on your side to get in. And what I mean by that is some years there's a a backlog of offensive linemen and only one or two offensive linemen are going to even really have a chance to get in. And uh, there might be only one tight end that makes the list. And so their their case sometimes uh, has a little more uh, momentum because they're they're not being judged against other players from the same position and era. It's, it's a difficult process. And I can tell you that everyone that is on that committee works tirelessly to make sure we get it right. We don't, I don't think, proclaim to always get it right, but everyone is committed and uh, to trying to do the best job we can. I do think the process gets criticized a lot unfairly because I see how much work people put in uh, to make sure we honor these players that um, you know have gotten to that point. Absolutely. On a good note. All right, that's going to wrap up this edition of the Duncan Holder Podcast. Of course, uh, you can subscribe to The Athletic, theathletic.com slash Duncan Holder, 40% off your annual subscription. Get our podcast, get all of our great work, whether in New Orleans, uh, every sport all over the globe, all over the country. Uh, definitely, we're still cranking out incredible work right now at The Athletic, even though games aren't being played. So jump on there or jump on Apple, Spotify, wherever you get your podcast. Rate, review, subscribe. Uh, do all that good stuff. So I want to thank our producer, Danielle, as always, for putting up with us. And we will be back next week, uh, Jeff and I, for another edition of the Duncan Holder Podcast here on the Athletics Podcast Network.